description of Nebuchadnezzar, the ancestor of this new king, Belshazzar. And then he speaks to Belshazzar, and he says, You, Belshazzar, his son, ancestor, you have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. So this isn't a kind of blind disobedience. This is a very deliberate, continual defiance against God. He's seen what happened to someone who defied God, but he's deliberately persisting in going the other way. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles and wives and concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, bronze, iron, wood and stone. Here's the bit I'd like to pause on. Which cannot see or hear or understand. They were praising objects that cannot see or hear or understand. And you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Just think about that. Praising objects that cannot see or hear or speak, that were created, and ignoring the God who holds your hand, your life in his hands. As you look at that contrast, I know what you're thinking. And I'm thinking it too. It's utterly crazy. What's he doing? But isn't this exactly the great exchange that I've described uh, on a couple of weeks on the trot now? So we, so we get it really clear. God created mankind to enjoy good things. But when good things become God, God just becomes a good thing. And the good things that were meant to be good end up ruling over us and never satisfying. And God just gets washed into the background. It's the great exchange where we exchange the glory of God who holds your life and my life in his hands for stuff even good stuff, and we're prepared to make that swap. And when you read of this foreign king doing this, it's easy to sort of say, well, there's a foreign king, and he's at this drunken party with all these concubines. But actually, it's a little picture of us. Though we may not live a lifestyle like that, we have certainly an attitude in our hearts that does this great exchange. The living God, who so often gets swapped for created stuff, often good stuff, that becomes, if I'm honest with myself, more important in my life than he is. And that's the frightening thing that's going on. On the screen behind me, on the left, are the words from Romans chapter 1, verses 21 to 22, which we looked at last week. On the right are words from, Roman, uh, from Daniel chapter 5. It's a typo there, it should say chapter 5. Just look at them and notice the contrast. They're saying the same thing. There was a, a German philosopher in the 19th century called George Hegel who famously said, the only thing we've ever learned from history is that we've learned nothing from history. And I think he was probably talking with reference to kind of wars and violence and other things. But he's, he's pretty true when it comes to the attitudes of our heart. In a sense, we've learned nothing. Because in Daniel chapter 5, there was the problem, which was the same problem as Genesis chapter 3 and the fall of man. And then you get to the book of Romans, it's the same problem. And then you get to 2017, Long Crendon, it's the same problem. We've learned nothing from our history because we continue to want to make this great exchange. And this is why last week I was talking about you and I need our hearts to be so captivated by the love of God in Jesus Christ. So moved that we look at this comparison and go, that's mad. Lord, I need your grace because I want to put you first and not live for other things. 
But we'll never grasp the folly of living for created things until our heart has been captivated by Christ. Because if Christ is a good thing alongside lots of other good things, the chances are we'll just chop and change. Good thing God, good thing God, good thing God. But when God becomes something that's so much bigger, so much more precious, so much more wonderful than any good thing you could ever enjoy, when it grips your heart and actually moves you inside, it becomes bit by bit easier to put him first. And that's what we need to pray that God's spirit would do, because it's not a decision I can make on myself. It's his work in my heart. Has your heart been captivated by the love of God? Because it's the only love that will really, really satisfy you deep down. So as we look at this chapter, I want to look at three certainties. We've already looked at the first one. It's madness to set yourself, myself, up against God. You're selling yourself short. You're selling yourself short. Here's the second certainty. It's madness to set yourself up against God because the writing is on the wall. Now I want you to go back to kind of, I don't know, about 550 BC. And we're there with Belshazzar in his banqueting hall, okay? Hopefully we'll get a bit of noise. There we go. So we're all just in the banqueting hall. And we're chatting away. And we're talking to each other. And just as we're enjoying our photographers and just dreaming of our great nation Babylon, suddenly on the white... Slowly comes, a hand writes it on the wall. Did you see it on the wall? And, and he looks. And as he looks, the noise becomes a little they start pointing, a third word appears, tapping. And the room is slowly going quieter and quieter. And then eventually the king is looking and he's saying, what is going on? This is a big drunken party and now he's quiet. What are they looking at? And he turns around and he sees the final word, passing. And it's written on the wall. And this great banquet suddenly goes quiet. And King Belshazzar is silent and he looks up at the wall in front of him and he sees these words which he does not understand which have suddenly just appeared on the wall. And this great party goes really quiet. Verse 5. Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster near the lampstand of the royal palace. The king watched as the hand wrote... And at that, his face turned pale. He was so frightened that his legs became weak and his knees were knocking. If you were using more colloquial language, it would literally read, he wet himself. He was terrified. Legs banging together. And so verse 7, the king calls in the astrologers, the magicians, all the ones who he's called in many times before in the history of Babylon. They've always failed. But he calls them in. And he says, if you can interpret this weird writing on the wall, I will reward you with amazing gifts. So all the wise men come in, verse 8, but no surprise, they couldn't read the writing or interpret it. So the king became even more terrified, his face grew even more pale, and his nobles were baffled. The party's over. Everyone's just stunned by the writing that is on the wall. 
Then the queen rocks up, verse 10, and she comes in and she says, hang on a minute, don't look so pale, verse 11. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. Your father, King Nebuchadnezzar, appointed him chief of the magicians, etc. Verse 12, he did this because Daniel, who he called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding and able to interpret dreams, riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel. He will tell you what this writing means. If you go back to week one again, I introduced this, introduced this theme of the sovereignty of God, which is a phrase that speaks of God's utter control of every situation. And probably back then, we were asking the question, why was Daniel here in Babylon? And what in the world was God doing with him there? But you see as we journey through these chapters that God had Daniel in Babylon for a very special reason. And it kicks in here with another king because God is going to use him as a spokesperson to speak truth into his life. I share that because I bet there are many people here who ask the question, what on earth am I doing? What, what role could I have in this church? What difference could I make? How is God ever going to use me in my situation? But we see that where we didn't understand how God was using Daniel, he did have a purpose for him because God is sovereign. And if you sit here this morning and go, well, God's got no purpose for me, he does. You just may not be able to see it yet. So Daniel verse 13 is brought before the king. And I think there's a sort of hint of irony here in the writer. Here is the king Belshazzar who's thrown this great banquet celebrating pagan gods. And now he calls in one of God's people to interpret the writing on the wall. What is going on? I sometimes reflect on this when I'm at a funeral. One of the great privileges of my job, but one of the hardest things is taking a funeral, particularly a funeral of someone where you did not know where they stood with the living God. But something has struck me in all the funerals I've taken. Probably 98% of all the people who would claim that they do not believe in God at a funeral want the comfort that God can give. Almost everyone. Now, why is that? They want you to pray with them. They want you to talk about God. They want you to talk about the God who the whole of their life they've said doesn't exist. And it's just puzzled me. If he doesn't exist, why would you want his comfort? Because he's not there. But there's something built in which tells us he is there, which is why in that moment of pain, many, many people cry out to him. Well, as we've already looked in verses 18 to 24, uh, Daniel um, kind of recounts Nebuchadnezzar's experience, and then he challenges this new king's arrogant defiance. He says, you have set yourself up, verse 23, against the Lord of heaven, you did not honour the God who holds in his hand your life. So let's go back to the inscription on the wall. These four words that no one could understand, no one could interpret, but they are words that are used in an ancient language of coinage. So proportionally, it would be the same as sticking a one-pound coin on the wall twice, then a five pence, and then a 50p. So these words are something to do with coinage, something to do with the marketplace, weighing of things. Here is what these words mean, verse 26. And you can read it there. Mene, which is repeated twice. God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And Parsin, or Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. 
This is the message that God wanted to speak to this godless king. And he's using the language of the weighing scales of coinage to explain what is going on. But what's the theology behind it? What is the truth behind these phrases? Let's have a look at them. When he says to this great king, your days are numbered, it's an expression that says, there is a God who is judged, and it's not you. Belshazzar, wake up. Surely you can tell now that you've got all these astrologers and magicians. They've never been able to interpret your dreams because there's no real power in them. But there is a judge, and it's not you. When he talks about you have been weighed and found wanting, he's talking about a just judgment. God never flies off the handle in anger. His judgment is always measured. It's always balanced. He's completely objective because he sees everything. So when God judges, he never does it unfairly. He always sees everything in all of our hearts that's wrong. He never misses anything, which is a good thing. Because if he missed stuff, you wouldn't want him to be judge. In just the same way as you wouldn't want a judge in a court of law to miss something. And your kingdom is divided. Yes, soon his kingdom would be divided. But really it speaks of a broken, divided heart. And this is the message that breaks into this great banquet that leaves everybody stunned and silent as they're listening in and Belshazzar meets the living God face to face. The reason you and I need to understand the seriousness of sin, to realise how far we are short of God's glory, is that if we don't grasp that, the gospel is not amazing. And as I said earlier, Jesus Christ will never captivate our heart. But if we understand just where he's brought us from, how much incredible love he has for us, and how he's prepared to take the judgment you and I deserve so that we can be forgiven and know him, that is what captivates your heart and makes the gospel special. And you cannot have one without the other because it's an empty gospel if it doesn't speak of judgment. But the gospel doesn't end in judgment. The gospel ends in hope. It ends in love. And that's what we see But sadly not for Belshazzar, because you read in verse 29, he almost kind of ignores this interpretation. He doesn't want to hear the words of God. He just says to Daniel, well, you've interpreted my dream. I'll give you all the rewards that I promised I would. Perhaps to take his mind off the inevitable. But look at the really sad news for this king, verse 30. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain. And Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. He was a man who was shaking his fist in defiance. There is no God. And if there is, I'm not going to worship him. And that night, his life was taken. And it's just a reminder, isn't it, that our lives are all far, far, far more fragile than we like to admit. And that's why this stuff really matters, because we've got to get right with God. Because he loves us and he wants to be in a relationship with us. And God gave this king an opportunity to get right with him. Like he gave the king before Nebuchadnezzar. Perhaps Nebuchadnezzar was humbled. Doesn't look like Belshazzar was. And the last we hear of him is that he is killed. Now of course this is a warning for any here who would sort of set themselves up defiantly against God. And in a sense that's all of us. It definitely is all of us. But this is one of the things that really motivates me in ministry, and actually not in ministry, because this was still a motivation when I was a teacher or when I was working on a building site. One of the things that gets me up in the morning is this truth, because if there is a God who is so passionate about knowing people, 
Surely there can be nothing better in the world than living a life with him at the center and pointing other people to that love. And it's what motivates. I think Wellesley was telling the story in his Jonah series a few months ago of um, the American preacher D.L. Moody, whose heart had been so captivated by the love of God. And he, he's with a young kind of apprentice. I, I forget exactly how the story goes, but I paraphrase. And he's up the top of the house with this young apprentice. He looks out the window and says to this young chap, what do you see out the window? And the young guy says, well, I see a crowd of people in the marketplace buying and selling. Young man to D.L. Moody, what do you see? And with a tear in his eye, he says, I see a huge marketplace full of people who don't know the living God and are going to spend an eternity without him. Two people saw the same thing, but they saw different things because one hadn't yet had his heart so grasped by the gospel and the other had. And that is the truth that we see in this passage. So it's madness to set ourselves up against God because we're setting ourselves short. It's madness because the writing is on the wall and judgment is real. But here's the glorious truth. I said the gospel always ends on a high. And this is why it's liberating to humble ourselves before God. His rule in our life frees us. Now perhaps you look at that and go, that makes no sense whatsoever. How can his rule, or indeed anyone's rule, free? I want to end with an illustration. When I was younger, I had a little kite, a bit like the one on the screen. And I love flying a kite, but my dream, and I've never yet fulfilled this dream, is to get one of those power kites, you know, the huge ones. I love the beach, and I want to go to the beach, and I want to fly my power kite and have a really good wrestle with God. The big ones can kind of lift you off the floor and throw you down the beach. I know he'll completely and utterly deck me, but it'd be good fun to have a wrestle with God as I fly my kite. But think about how a kite flies. A kite, a big or a small one, that's fixed in the sky, has tiny cords that are attached to the kite flyer. And just a little flick of the wrist or a little movement of the arms, and this huge kite can fly through the sky. And it's extraordinary to watch and to look at. And even better when you fly it yourself. You imagine a little boy comes along with a pair of scissors and he cuts the cord. I don't want the the kite just to be here on the beach so I can see it, he says. I want it to fly across the whole beach and then go to the next beach so everyone can see this amazing kite flying in the sky. It's awesome. Of course, you know what happens when you cut the cord. The little boy wants the kite to be free, but what happens to it? Falls to the floor. It's not free at all. And I think that's a little picture of what happens in our life when we in defiance say to God, I want to be free. I want to live life my way. All we're doing is cutting the cord that attaches us to the living God who loves us and made us and created us for a relationship with him. And if we cut that cord and say, I'll be better off without you, I'll be happier without you, I'll be free without you, we'll be like a kite that will stop flying because we weren't designed to live our life without him. So if you want to go away from here and think and ponder a bit more about what it could look like for God to so grip your heart, think of this verse I'm going to put on the screen to close, which is a verse that speaks of what happens when we give our life to God's rule. Because when we give our life to God's rule, look at the way he rules over us. It's not like a tyrant with a big stick that whacks us every time we muck up. But it's a loving God who gives and gives and gives. This is one of the first verses I learned when I was in Africa in 2004 on my first trip. This was the memory verse of the team. I've never forgotten it. I still got the t-shirt in the loft at home with these words written on the front. 
These are words that Jesus spoke about himself where he said, the Son of Man, even the Son of Man, did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. If you want a picture of what living under the rule of God looks like, that is the best picture you'll get. Because God's rule over our life gives to us. God's rule over our life frees us. And that is why when we humble ourselves before him, is actually the freest that we could ever be. And friends, that is why the gospel matters so, so, so much.